Welcome to Worldview, a foreign affairs podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Chris Dooley. Later, I'll be catching up on events in Syria and the United States with our Washington correspondent, Suzanne Lynch. But first this week, we're discussing the lengthy prison sentences handed down on Monday to Catalan politicians who were involved in the organisation of an independence referendum two years ago. The sentences of up to 13 years sparked protests across Catalonia and have reignited the territorial crisis that has dominated Spanish politics over the past couple of years. Guy Hedgeco has been covering that story for us and he joins me now from Barcelona. Guy, what's the atmosphere like in, in Barcelona today, Tuesday, a day after those sentences were handed down? Well, I think there's certainly that feeling of the you know the day after the night before. Um, there was obviously a huge amount of drama uh, last night particularly in Barcelona. Um, today, things have been slightly sort of eerily quiet throughout the morning. And I, I think the tension is building again. There are going to be more demonstrations uh, this afternoon, this evening and into the night, probably. Um, so there's there's a feeling of tension, certainly on, you know, you go into walk into a bar and on the TV, you know, all Spanish bars have TVs on all the time. Um, they're showing the news from yesterday over and over again, the scenes of police uh, charging demonstrators, demonstrators in Barcelona and other places. Um, so it, it's kind of a bit like that feeling we had two years ago when that referendum was held here in uh, Catalonia against the orders of uh, of the courts and the government. Um, and there was a huge amount of tension in the air then. It's, it's a slight feeling of, of that kind of tension again. Um, Guy, our, our listeners will be familiar with the background to this case. And it arose from that referendum you mentioned there, which was held by the, the, the Catalan regional, regional Administration in October 2017. Now, that referendum had been declared illegal by Spain's constitutional court. And, and we all remember the violent scenes on the day when the Spanish police tried to stop the referendum by force. Can you just give us a, a quick reminder then of how we got from there to having 12 Catalan leaders on trial then in a, in a Madrid court? Well, the, the, the trial of uh, these 12 uh, Catalan uh, politicians and grassroots leaders came directly, was, was a direct uh, result of uh, that referendum back in 2017. Um, Twelve people who were seen as um, having been closely involved in that referendum and the, the ensuing declaration of independence by the Catalan parliament um, were put on trial. Um, now, they were, um, almost all of them were members of the former Catalan government, but also the former speaker of the Catalan parliament, Karma Forcadell, and these two civic leaders, Jordi Sanchez and Jordi Cuixart. Um, now, there were other people who were seen as being uh, very closely involved in that process and that drive for independence back in 2017. For example, Carlos Puigdemont, who was the president of Catalonia, back then, but he uh, subsequently fled to Belgium. Uh, several other uh, independence leaders fled abroad, um, not just to Belgium, but also to, uh, to, Switzerland, to, Scot- uh, to, to Switzerland and Scotland and other countries. Um, so these 12 were seen as um, sort of the main um, leaders of the independence drive who uh, were had remained in Spain. Um, they face some very serious charges um, in this trial, um, the, the state prosecutor brought charges of violent rebellion against them. Um, now, uh, there are other charges. The charges they were found guilty of were not for violent, rebe- violent rebellion. They were, uh, in the end, for sedition, for nine of them, and then for three others, uh, disobedience. That was for disobeying a court order. Um, it has taken a long time for this trial to take place. The authorities say that uh, that is because it's so complex, because there are 12 defendants, 
because there were so many charges against them and there was a lot of information, there were 500 witnesses during the court case. So there was just a lot of information to process. Um, nonetheless, it has taken a long time um, and it was a hugely anticipated verdict when it finally came. And, and nine of the 12 received uh, sentences of between about approximately 10 and 13 years, those who were convicted of sedition, isn't that correct? Yes, that's right. So Oriol um, Junqueras, who, who was the, the vice president of Catalonia back in 2017, he was the, the most senior um, political uh, figure of the defendants. So it we always believed that he was going to receive a tougher sentence. That was the case. He was found guilty of sedition, received a 13-year sentence. Um, and then um, eight other colleagues of his received sentences, ranging from um, from 11 and a half years, sorry, tw- uh, 11 and a half years, 12 years, down to um, nine years for Jordi uh, Sanchez and Jordi Quichard, those two uh, civic leaders. Um, now, and there were reported leaks from the Spanish Supreme Court over the weekend. It's probably not a good look for a Supreme Court, but but there you go. But, so we did have advance notice that long sentences were coming. Was it a shock, nevertheless, that they got such long sentences, or was it always anticipated that if they were convicted, the the, the jail terms would be lengthy? Well, I mean, the, the leak was interesting because the leak did talk about the sedition charges quite specifically, and this came out in a lot of Spanish media, and it seemed fairly you know, at the time, fairly solid information that there were nine of these defendants were going to be found guilty of sedition, you know, and that turned out to be the case. What we didn't hear about in, in the leaks were the, those prison terms. I think um, the length of those prison terms did uh, surprise people. Um, you know, the fact that uh, Oriol Junqueras got 13 years, um, that came as a shock, you know, I think not just for him and his his circle and the, the the independence movement, but I think for a lot of other other people, they they were uh, surprised that he was given such a, a long sentence, given that he hadn't been found guilty of rebellion. Um, but I think the interesting thing about the, the the leak was there was there has been a theory that the leak was perhaps uh, deliberate, uh, with the idea of perhaps taking some of the sting out of the the immediate social response on the street here in Barcelona and in other Catalan towns. Now, that's not, we, we don't know that for sure, but there was a feeling that, you know, with that information coming out bit by bit over the weekend, uh, the verdict came on Monday, that perhaps some of the drama might have been taken out of the the protests that we, we saw yesterday. And now, in the end, we saw some very dramatic scenes, so perhaps it didn't serve that purpose um, anyway. But it, it is a theory that has been circulating. It's kind of disturbing a little bit if that's the case, isn't it? Because it kind of suggests if the leak was coming from the court, that the court is actually is acting in some kind of a political way, really, isn't it? Well, yeah, yeah, and that's always been the sort of the accusation that the independence movement has made of the court, not just of the Supreme Court, but of uh, of the whole judiciary in Spain, saying that there's not that separation of powers. Um, now, yeah, I should add that Manuel Marchena, the, the 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 judge who was overseeing this particular case in the Supreme Court, he. Uh, spoke publicly over the weekend at how annoyed he was at the leaks and he he didn't like the fact that the leaks had come out. So he was very much given the impression that he was not uh, he was not happy about the leaks. Now, w- we don't know for sure whether this was a deliberate leak or not. Um, but I mean, I, I think it would have made sense to have to, to leak this information in an effort 
to try and uh, draw some of the sting out of the the ensuing protests. But we, I think we may never know whether or not that was deliberate or not. And how have the political establishments then in, in Madrid and in Barcelona reacted to these sentences? Well, I mean, it's such a divisive issue, the Catalan issue, um, that the, the responses have been extremely divided, very polarised, as you would really expect. Um, I think Pedro Sanchez, the prime minister, he, in a sense, is in a slightly more difficult situation because he's someone who has wanted at least to be seen, to be trying to engage with the Catalan government, not be quite as tough on uh, the Catalan issue as, for example, his conservative predecessor, Mariana Rajoy. Um, And also, he doesn't want to be seen to be sort of meddling too much in the judiciary, talking too much about judicial decisions. So, uh, Pedro Sanchez has has said that you know the Supreme Court worked very hard on this. He respects their professionalism, um, basically saying that the, you know they they did everything right. The whole process seemed to be correctly uh, carried out, um, and he certainly hasn't criticised the, um, the the sentences or the convictions. Um, but I think he's he's perhaps um, fallen slightly short of some of the politicians to his right who have been more strident in saying, you know, this, these sentences were deserved. This is what the, um, the leaders of the independence movement um, uh, should deserve for what they did. For example, Pablo Casado, leader of the Popular Party, has taken that, that sort of tone, saying you get what, you're, what you deserve if you behave like this. Um, Albert Rivera, leader of Ciudadanos, which is a party on the right, very stridently uh, unionist. He took an, a, a sort of unusual line. He said, I know a lot of people will be unhappy about this sentence or these verdicts, suggesting that they perhaps weren't tough enough for the likes of many Spaniards. But he said, you know, we, we've got to basically accept it because this is justice being done. So he was kind of um, acknowledging that a lot of people would like to have seen tougher sentences. Um, but at the same time, trying not to be seen to be attacking the the judiciary. Um, I mean, the other uh, interesting response has been that of Podemos to the left of the socialists, um, who have criticised um, the the verdict, saying that this is not the way to you know to, to resolve this this issue, and these sentences are too tough. There, there was just one thing in Sanchez's response to the Prime Minister guy that surprised me a little, because as you said, I, I, you'd expect a Prime Minister to defend. Uh, uh, a decision of the of the courts and and you know separation of powers must be upheld and so on. But he also said the verdict confirmed the defeat of the independence movement. That was a kind of quite a provocative you know statement to make, wasn't it? Yeah, and I, I think you know whenever uh, Sanchez talks about the Catalan issue or talks about the judiciary and the Catalan issue, you know people are going to be looking for those connections you know between politics and the judiciary. Um, so he's always going to be sort of um watch very closely in in that sense um and yes i mean drawing a sort of political conclusion from uh, this verdict would seem uh, pretty provocative um because you know after all you know he, he's one of the people who said well you know this isn't something that can't be resolved purely um through legal means um that's always been the sort of mantra of the the independence movement itself, which says that you know that using the courts um, against the independence movement is useless. This is a political problem. Now Sanchez has a sort of spin on that, saying, "Well, the, the courts should do their work. Then we can get to work with the politics of this." But the problem is, if he yeah, if he starts talking about the politics of it immediately and mixing that up with uh, with the courts' decisions, 
then that opens him up to potentially to, to, to criticism and, the, and the, the independence movement can start saying, well, those uh, claims we make of a lack of separation of powers are entirely justified. And what about then in, in Barcelona? Where did these sentences leave the Catalan independence movement? Well, I mean, the, the movement was extremely well prepared for this verdict. Um, it, we had known that the verdict was coming. Um, the independence movement had warned there would be a backlash. Um, and it was as if the independence movement assumed that there were going to be tough sentences all along. They've been saying, you know, that it's going to be a, an unjust verdict. We will respond accordingly. Um, I think the fact that those sentences were so long, you know, up to 13 years, that kind of justified in their eyes um, a very strong backlash. And that's what we saw on the streets almost immediately, certainly in Barcelona, but in other towns, uh, Lleida, Tarragona, Girona, all the main towns and cities around Catalonia um, saw large demonstrations very soon after the verdict was announced on Monday morning. Um, and then those demonstrations and other actions carried out throughout the day. Certainly in Barcelona, there were road closures uh, by activists. Rail links were closed uh, for several hours um, in and around Barcelona. And then uh, perhaps most notably of all, uh, Barcelona's El Prat airport uh, was pretty much shut down uh, yesterday evening. I mean, throughout the afternoon, um, roads to the airport were closed down. I was talking to a taxi driver who said he and his colleagues just couldn't get there. They couldn't take passengers to the airport throughout much of the day, and they'd never seen anything like it. And at the airport itself, there were those scenes of thousands of people who had gathered there um, and clashing with police. And several dozen flights were cancelled uh, because of those those demonstrations. And were those demonstrations then a taste of things to come, Guy? Well, it, it looks like it. I mean, it seems as if behind those the more sort of drastic um, actions on Monday was a group called the um, Tsunami Democratic, the Democratic Tsunami, which is a sort of slightly mysterious uh, civic group. Um, no one quite seems to know who is leading it or who is behind it. Um, but it has been flagging for a few weeks um, the fact that it was going to respond to these verdicts. And it seems to have been the organisation behind certainly those scenes at the airport. It seems to have been very organised in terms of getting people to the airport, focusing on the airport and other sort of transport links and hubs as its focus in order to try and bring about a kind of infrastructure collapse in Catalonia. Now, we didn't see that completely in Catalonia on Monday, but it came pretty close to it, um, certainly if you, if, you, if you look at what was going on at the airport. I don't think that's going to be an isolated incident. I think it seems as if the strategy of, of that group and of many pro-independence Catalans is to keep demonstrating over the coming days or even weeks. Uh, the big question is what to what end are they demonstrating? What, to what end are they protesting? Because there's no clear end to this in sight. Uh, what will it take for them to go back home and, and, and give up on the demonstrations? And that leads me to my next question, Guy, is, you know, the protest, that's one response, but at a political level, what options are open now to the independence movement? Where do you think they will take their campaign from here? Well, it's very difficult to see one clear strategy on the part of the independence movements now. I mean, if you go back two years to that referendum that was held in 2017, it was very clear that, you know, pretty much all pro-independence Catalans were behind this idea of a vote being held um, in defiance of the Constitutional Court, in defiance of the Spanish government, but nonetheless holding a vote 
and then within a few days declaring independence if the result dictated that. Um, it was very clear. Now, now it, things are much less clear. The independence movement has become much more divided. There's a division between the pro-independence parties that govern the Catalan Republican left and Together for Catalonia, who govern in, uh, in coalition. Um, there's a, a division between those parties and their social base, which in many cases is much more keen to push ahead with things, to, to push ahead with a, a unilateral response and try and uh, drive uh, for independence once again. There's also a division between those two parties within the government itself. So there are a lot of problems there. They all have slightly different ideas about how they should proceed. The Catalan Republican Left Party, for example, which is one of those parties in government, it wants to broaden the social base. It wants to see the support for independence rise above 50% um, and then move on from there with a social majority in Catalonia. At the moment, support for Catalonia, according to, to the last polls that I, I saw, it was somewhere around 44-45%, which is you know, somewhat lower than it has been in, in previous years. Um, so, you know, there are people who think that that needs to change before you can um, take those drastic steps. But there are those civic movements, the Catalan National Assembly, for example, which is very keen just to drive ahead with the um, the move to independence, kind of to go back to 2017 and take that unilateral approach again. Now, at court in the middle of all this is the Catalan president, Kim Torra. And at times it seems like he's gone one way. At other times, it seems like he's gone the other. Now, in the build up to the sentence um, and in the wake of the sentence, he has said that, you know, this is completely undemocratic. I don't accept this. He has actively called for civic disobedience from Catalans, but he's fallen short of uh, carrying out institutional disobedience himself. So he's in a slightly strange position there. And I think uh, it'll be interesting to see um, what he does in the coming days and the coming weeks. He's certainly been talking quite tough over the last few days, but we'll have to see if he follows that up and if he pursues that more strident uh, pro-independence line, or if he steps back a little bit in the coming weeks. Okay. Well, Guy, we'll continue to follow your reports and analysis from, on this story from Barcelona on irishtimes.com. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks very much, Chris. It's a pleasure. Thanks again to Guy Hedgeco in Barcelona. We're turning our attention to Syria now, and on Monday, the US President Donald Trump moved to punish Turkey for its military offensive against its Kurdish neighbours across the Syrian border. The president announced sanctions on Turkish officials and repeated his threat to swiftly destroy the Turkish economy if it continued with its attack on the Kurds. Trump also spoke to his Turkish counterpart, Tayyip Erdogan, to urge him to call a ceasefire. Suzanne Lynch, our Washington correspondent, joins me now on the line from there. Um, Suzanne, heroic words there from Donald Trump and impressive diplomacy, no doubt. But is all of this an attempt to camouflage his role in creating a dreadful mess here? Yeah, I think it's very much a case of too little, too late, really, from Donald Trump. Uh, this attempt to, um, this announcement of sanctions on Turkey is an attempt by the White House to try and um, resolve a situation that's really spiraling out of control, not just in Syria, but to an extent uh, here domestically in Washington. Uh, Donald Trump's fateful phone call now on October the 6th with Erdogan, um, in which he said that he would withdraw U.S. troops from northern Syria, effectively giving the green light to Turkey to uh, to invade the area. 
um, has been received very badly here by, by Democrats, obviously, but also by Republicans and members of the foreign policy establishment. Uh, so I think this announcement of sanctions was a, a, an indication of the White House really scrambling to try and respond to this rapidly moving situation. And I mean, one of the one of the many features of this is how quickly this uh, this crisis has escalated in northern Syria. Um, almost immediately of the Turkey moved in. Uh, and then at the weekend, we saw the Kurds, the SDF, uh, sign a, a pact essentially with uh, the, with Assad's uh, troops, um, Assad's government. Uh, so I think, yeah, it's a kind of belated attempt by the White House to kind of get a grip on this story. Um, Mike Pence announcing these sanctions was Mike Pence and the Treasury Secretary, Steve Mnuchin. Uh, Mike Pence said that he would be traveling to Turkey uh, imminently with the National Security Advisor, Robert O'Brien, and they called for an immediate ceasefire. But of course, there's a, there's a huge irony here that they're calling for a ceasefire just after uh, US policy has effectively prompted, was the catalyst for this uh, now escalating situation uh, in, in this area of Syria. And if we go back, Suzanne, just nine days to that phone call, you mentioned there that initial phone call between Trump and, and Erdogan last Sunday week, and that was followed by an announcement by the White House that the US would be pulling its forces out of northern Syria in advance of this offensive um, by the Turks against the Syrian Kurds. Um, many people at the time warned of potential dire consequences, but I don't think anybody foresaw their worst predictions coming true as quickly as they have done. Exactly. And this is what's really worrying. And there's the, the so many dynamics. It's not only... Uh, the plight of the Kurds, which really has uh, got a lot of coverage here in the United States. Um, and there's been a lot of, I think there's broad, broad scale understanding that, that America has kind of abandoned an ally. Of course, it's a bit more complex because Turkey obviously is also an ally. Um, but as well as the, the impact on the Kurds and the actual humanitarian issues that are now unfolding in the area, you've also got um, the fact that this is a real turning point in the Syrian war, that Assad is now, Assad's troops are now effectively just walking into swathes of territory that they have not been in for years, uh, and that this is also a big uh, victory for Iran and for Russia in particular. Um, so, you know, the, the, the ramifications in terms of Middle East policy more generally for America are huge here. And there is a sense of this is spiraling out of control. One of the many, I mean... Uh, there's a lot of focus now on, on this foreign policy decision, and this is probably the worst foreign policy decision of, of Donald Trump's presidency. But one little detail here that hasn't been confirmed, but the Washington Post uh, in particular reported that during this phone call October the 6th between Erdogan and Trump, that it was about other topics, about trade, etc. And then kind of at the end of the phone call, Erdogan you know, referenced this issue that they've been pressing on a while, that you know they wanted, uh, that they're concerned about the Kurds in northern Syria. And then kind of asked Donald Trump, would this be OK? And he said, yeah, sure, we're going to take the troops out. But this was a really kind of offhand comment. It was uh, Donald Trump formulating U.S. foreign policy on the fly with no strategy, no advice, you know, no advice. He's somebody who says he can run foreign policy by instinct. He's got a good instinct for this kind of thing. And that this is the way this decision was made, a decision that's going to have really, really dramatic consequences for the Middle East and for American standing in the world. And of course, Susanna, a further consequence of the decision was that the security tension of Islamic State prisoners who were being being held by, by the Syrian Kurds, that, that of course is now under threat. And we already have reports of, of escapees um, from, yeah. from at least one side. What efforts are taking place at congressional level to undo the damage or, or reverse course? Yeah, so we saw uh, Congress are back in session um, this week, even though there's been so much happening on the impeachment side, it's, it's easy to forget that they actually were not in session. Uh, just some of the committees remained in Washington. 
And I think there's going to be a huge focus now this week in, in the capital. Uh, Nancy Pelosi has spoken to Senator Lindsey Graham. He's a very senior Republican who's a real ally of Donald Trump, a golfing partner. And he, he backs the president on pretty much everything. But on this, he's been very strong against uh, the president's decision uh, to uh, withdraw the U.S. troops. Uh, so they spoke by phone yesterday um, and uh, they, it looks like they're going to, there's going to be some kind of a bipartisan vote to uh, to basically reverse, calling on Donald Trump to reverse this decision uh, on the U.S. troops. Now, how that's going to work in practice, I mean, this is a whole other issue that's 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 a, a real problem for America because those 1,000 U.S. troops are pretty much still in that area. Uh, and it's unclear, there's mixed messages about what's happening with those troops. Uh, Donald Trump said on Monday, for example, that he would leave, uh, I think the phrase was, a small footprint of U.S. forces uh, in the area. But, you know, that's a whole logistic issue for the Pentagon there. But yeah, so there's going to be probably some kind of a vote. Uh, the sanctions were welcomed. The sanctions that were announced on Monday were welcomed by Democrats. It was, and maybe it gave political cover to people like Lindsey Graham, because he kind of is changing his tune slightly now and saying he, he welcomed the sanctions and that he's going to be working with the president. So some people can read his reaction being quite cynical Lindsey Graham is not prepared to call the president out on so many things. And on this thing, he will. But ultimately, he's rowing back behind him. Uh, but obviously, the sanctions move was not enough for most Democrats. Uh, those sanctions that were announced uh, were not as they're strong, but they're not as strong as some people might have expected. Uh, some analysts expected that maybe Erdogan himself might have been targeted. This not, did not happen. And the uh, reaction on the markets and the lira suggested that, you know, the sanctions could have been a lot worse, essentially. Uh, so I don't think that's going to um, reassure Democrats who are now very, very concerned about uh, what's happened in the last few weeks in Syria. Now, Trump always has an eye, of course, on his own base. And I'm wondering how this might play with his own base, because the situation, of course, militarily and diplomatically is very complicated. But he has a simple message, doesn't he, for his supporters, which mm. is the US needs to stop fighting other people's wars. He wants to bring the troops home, etc. And he has been expounding that message, you know, going right back to the election campaign in 2016. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And he has he's you're right. He's, he's you know, this is a skill he keep, he keeps, uh, you know, he keeps reiterating very, very simple messages. And on this issue, he's reiterating that message exactly that he was elected uh, partly on the promise to bring American troops out of the Middle East. And that's what people want him to do. And he's been tweeting through, as he's been kind of live tweeting, if you like, as this situation has been deteriorating, he's again defended his situation saying, you know, America's better off out of this, essentially. Now, there are lots of problems and uh, contradictions in this position. For example, in the last few days, America has announced that it's sending more troops to Saudi Arabia. So there is Donald Trump increasing uh, troop levels in another part of the Middle East. Uh, there's been very little movement. We've been hearing this for so long about Afghanistan, about moving more troops out of Afghanistan. It's not really happening either. So, but but then this is the, this is the, some people would say genius and, and some people would say corruption, essentially, of Donald Trump, that he promises things uh, that are illogical to his base, but they, uh, they support that. For example, he'll say something on trade that will actually affect uh, farmers in America negatively. Um, and yet they like the fact that he's standing up to China. Similarly with this, most Trump supporters will probably say, look, we feel sorry for the Kurds, it's bad, but we do need to get out of this. So I think he's banking on that, all right, that his base are going to keep with him. But what's interesting is that the Republican Party so far is really um, is really raising concerns about this. And, and I, I've been saying, I, I've thought this for a while, that this may be the issue that brings Donald Trump, not down, but will might affect his popularity among uh, the congressional Republicans. And that's foreign policy. 
the Republican Republican Party is traditionally the the party of law and order, of of foreign policy, of defence, and the idea that you know America is walking out of this, um, uh, even despite all the warnings, um, is something that a lot of Republicans are going to find very very hard to take. Uh, so considering the timing of this, that it's it's coinciding with the impeachment issues when he's going to need these Republican supporters on the Hill, um, this could be difficult for him. But as I say, you know, sanctions and stuff, if he, he starts trying to re-engage with Turkey, maybe it will be enough to give political cover to Republicans on Capitol Hill. But I think you're right. I think a lot of his base, the already voters out there in America, will probably just keep listening to his rhetoric and will agree with him on this. And in terms of the message, you mentioned the impeachment issue there, and it's it's different, I think, with the impeachment issue, isn't it? Because here it's the Democrats that have the simple message, which is simply that Trump asked a foreign leader to do him a favour mm. and help investigate a political rival in Joe Biden. Does that explain why opinion polls are consistently showing a, a fairly high level of support from the American public for the impeachment process? Yeah, exactly. And I know we've spoken about this before on the podcast, but that is one of the reasons I think Nancy Pelosi decided to move on this when she did. It's exactly three weeks ago since she launched the impeachment inquiry. Because of the sense, this was a simple example of a transgression by the president. This was him in a phone call that was then released asking a foreign government to investigate a Democrat, essentially. And I think that was that simple message, a simple anecdote that people could really understand and grasp. And I, and I think that that's continued to be the case. Um, that impeachment inquiry is still progressing very, very quickly. As I say, just three weeks ago, uh, the impeachment inquiry was announced. Then Congress broke for two weeks. But the momentum has kept up. And what we've seen over the last few weeks is a constant stream of administration officials, former ambassadors, uh, in some cases being subpoenaed and in some cases being requested to uh, testify before uh, three, mainly three committees in the House of Representatives. And they've been doing so consistently this week. Uh, the members of Congress, the full Congress are now just back in Washington. This is going to continue this week. And this is putting a lot of pressure on Donald Trump. Also, what's emerging is a lot of concern now about Rudy Giuliani, the president's personal lawyer. And I think that story, we're going to get a lot more knowledge and a lot more detail about what exactly Giuliani was doing in Ukraine for the last few months. And effectively, the fact that Mr. Trump's personal lawyer was running a shadow foreign policy operation in Ukraine. And there was a very interesting testimony given to those uh, to a number of House committees on Monday by Fiona Hill, a former top advisor um, to the White House on Russia, which has added to the pressure on Trump. Just tell us briefly a bit about what she had to say. Yeah, there was a lot of expectation about Fiona Hill's testimony. She's a very well-known, she's British, She's um, she's um, was worked for the Brookings Institute, a, a very well-known think tank here in Washington for years. And she, there were to be honest, quite a few eyebrows raised when she started working with the uh, with Donald Trump as a, as a senior Russia advisor. She's a Russia expert and she'd be seen as quite anti-Putin, although it's probably a bit more nuanced than that. She's a real expert on Russia and, and, and I suppose by extension Ukraine. She stopped working for the administration back in July, I believe, uh, and she, was, uh, she testified before Congress on Monday. And during that testimony, this is one of the the characteristics of this, of course, that these people are testifying in private. And then what happens to a greater or lesser, lesser extent, uh, details of their testimony leak out then by the end of the day, members who have heard their testimony. But what the New York Times is now reporting is that during her testimony, which lasted more than nine hours on Monday, she it disclosed how uh, the former national security advisor, John Bolton, um, was alarmed by what he was hearing about Rudy Giuliani's actions in Ukraine. And she, he instructed uh, Ms. Hill to tell White House lawyers 
about these concerns, that they were very concerned that he was essentially running this campaign uh, in Ukraine, that he was working on his own to extract damaging information about Democrats on President President Trump's behalf. Um, And, you know, that this was being run um, outside the usual national security process. uh, And the advisors around Donald Trump, the official advisors were aware this was happening and couldn't really do anything to stop it. So she's really showing there that there was major red lights happening. Uh, obviously, John Bolton is one of the many people who have now left the administration. Um, but that was that was a very interesting development because I think, as I say, Giuliani now and what exactly he was doing in Ukraine is going to be a real focus uh, of attention for investigators up on the hill. I probably ask you this question every time you come on, Suzanne, but is there a sense now that the net is actually tightening around Trump and, and the Syrian uh, misstep that he took is 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 adding to the problem for him because it has driven a wedge between him and, and some of his, you know, strongest allies. Yeah, I think this is a very difficult moment for Donald Trump. And um, the impeachment inquiry is, as I say, progressing very, very quickly. And uh, for example, a lot of the testimony that's come out in the last few days, the former uh, ambassador to Ukraine, who was with, recalled early back in May, she testified last Friday and talked about how there was a kind of a conspiracy against her to remove her. And like this kind of evidence is, is pretty easy for people to understand. And uh, it, it's very, very damaging uh, that the Donald Trump is kind of running Ukraine affairs uh, for his own political reasons. And I think that is a very you know worrying development for Donald Trump. Uh, also to mention the EU ambassador, Gordon Sondland, who was prohibited from uh, testifying last week is going to testify this week. He's really in the middle of all this. He worked closely with Giuliani um, in Ukraine. Um, so he's going to be a big source of interest for uh, investigators in the House. Yeah, and just actually on Sondland, Sondland, sorry, I mean, there is a suggestion that he is he is going to say there was a quid pro quo involved in these Ukraine um, interactions, although he's saying it wasn't a corrupt quid pro quo. But, <laughs> yes, yeah. But even that's enough to really do damage to Trump, isn't it? Exactly, because people, there were... Um, uh, one of the former, the special envoy to Ukraine, released a series of text messages that uh, detailed his involvement and Gordon Sondland's involvement with Ukraine. And there were suggestions in those text, text messages that uh, there was a promise to the Ukrainian president to secure a meeting with Donald Trump in the White House if he did certain things. So that's what investigators on the on the House side are going to be concentrating on with Sondland. Now, it does, we do also have to mention, there was a mention that Sondland, there were some kind of text messages relevant or emails relevant to the inquiry that were handed over to the State Department by Sondland and uh, the House said they wanted to get their hands on that. I don't think those messages, for example, are going to be disclosed to the House. It's just going to be Sondland. So he's a Trump ally. So how far he's going to go in his testimony uh, it remains to be seen. We don't know. But uh, getting back to your original question there, yeah, look, it, it's a politically difficult com- uh, moment for Donald Trump. Um, I think he's banking on, like he has done throughout his presidency, on his base sticking with him. I think they will. But then you're back to the broader question, which is, which, which is, you know, underlining everything in the run-up to next year's election, which is whether that base will be enough, uh, will be enough to secure Donald Trump the election. Does he need to win more supporters over to his side in these swing states? Um, and it's down to these few swing states. What's his popularity uh, in these in these very you know small districts in certain swing states? That's what it's going to come down to because in this country now the anti-Trumpers are as visceral in their apathy towards Donald Trump as they ever were, even more so. And his supporters are even more trenched in their support for him. So it's that middle voter and how important they're going to be uh, in the election next year. Is, is I think 
what Donald Trump is going to have his eye on. But as as usual, I think he's just going to count on his base being motivated enough to turn up and back him and, and re-elect him for another four years. OK, Suzanne, we'll be talking about this again soon, no doubt. But that's all for this week. For more on these and other stories, go to irishtimes.com. Thanks for listening. Goodbye for now.